The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Nehemiah chapter 6, and uh, while you're turning there, just a quick review of what we've seen so far. In chapter 1, we saw Nehemiah a, uh, um, uh, uh, from the kingdom of Judah originally, but right now they're in exile. The, the um, Assyrians have taken them away, and so, so right now the nation kind of doesn't exist, though there's a remnant in Judah that's not doing well at all, and he hears word of it, and he's moved because these are his brothers, this is God's people, and wants to come back to Judah to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. In chapter 2, he goes to the king that he works for. He is the cupbearer for the king. He has like the greatest job in the world, I mean, I guess unless someone's trying to assassinate the king, because his job is to eat the food and drink the wine that the king gets. And that's his job. He eats and drinks for a living, is what he does. But yet he did not hold so tightly to that particular job and that um, living in the palace and all those sorts of things. He, he had this call for God's people and, and wanted to go and do this. So he goes to the king and expresses his heart. And the king doesn't just let him go, but equips him, gives him the papers, the authority to go do the work. And then in chapter 3, we get this uh, boring but important um, breakdown on all the different gates there that were being built and who worked where and what family worked here, what tribe worked there, um, and kind of a breakdown uh, of all these things. And you can be tempted to read that and try to go through and go, what does this mean? Like, there's some hidden meaning in here because the Bible surely wouldn't just take a whole chapter and teach us about how Benjamin and Hassab repaired opposite of their house, and then after them, Azariah and the son of Me- I don't know what that name is, son of Ananiah, repaired his own house. It must mean something. So Benjamin, that's short, that's long for Ben. Ben has her, Ben has, Ben, you know what I mean? Like you can try to dig and try to figure out some sort of code, but I'll make it really easy for you about what chapter three means. What chapter three means is that God uses real people in real time, in real history to do his work. It's there because this is a historical, verifiable, certifiable, you can do the research yourself, this stuff happened. Happened in a real time, in a real place. And this is what God's showing us here. And then in chapter 4, things get tough. Because in chapter 4, we start dealing with the opposition that came. Um, Anytime you're doing a work for the Lord, anytime you're doing a good work for the kingdom of God, opposition is a guarantee. It was definitely a guarantee in this particular uh, case. Why might Satan not want this to ever happen? I mean, think about it. There's prophecies about Jesus Christ, one day the Messiah who would come. And he's referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's prophecies about him going into the temple, which is in Judah, in Jerusalem, there's all of these different things that has to actually come true. Not just things that happen in Jesus' time, but things that has to happen according to the scriptures when Jesus returns. And so if the enemy can keep this work from happening, it ruins everything. So the attacks that come here are real. Don't mistake this to be like, oh, he had a hassle. But every, every construction project has difficulties. So, okay, we're learning about it. Big deal. No, these are major demonic spiritual attacks trying to stop not just an important work of God, but a work of God that literally plays into all of redemptive history. So this is a big deal what's going on here. And so in chapter 4, we see there's opposition from outside, men like Sanballat and others. We're going to hear his name again tonight. Then in chapter 5, which we looked at last week, it's really um, sad because we learn about opposition that came from within. 
that there were people in Judah, Israelites themselves, Jews themselves, who were, who were charging exorbitant interest rates and just taking advantage of the other Jewish people because the economy was struggling. It's an agrarian, agricultural society, but they can't really do a lot of farming. They can't grow a lot of animals. They can't do a lot of these things because they're all here trying to rebuild this wall. And so as a result, they have no money to pay bills. They have no money to pay taxes. They don't have enough food to feed themselves. People are struggling. And so here's these other Jews, brothers, and instead of all joining together and helping get this project done, they're just completely taking advantage of one another. And, and so we see that Nehemiah had to come and take care of that and deal with this issue. And he does. And he comes to him and says, look, guys, what you're doing's not right. You're not allowed to do this. You're taking advantage of one another. You need to give this money back. You need to let these people, people were even being enslaved. You need to let these things go, let these people go, and you need to get back on board with the program that God has designed you to be a part of. And today in chapter 6, we're going to see more opposition, but we're also going to end up seeing the completion of this particular work. But before we do that, I want to pick up really quickly something out of chapter 5 that we ran out of time on last week. Nehemiah is talking to those guys, and he's like, this is not okay. You cannot be taking slaves. You cannot be charging this kind of interest. You cannot be getting wealthy over the suffering of your brothers and sisters who are here volunteering their time to go build the wall that God has sent us to do. This is not okay. But he doesn't just point fingers and say, you do this, you do this. Look look at the example Nehemiah himself has set. Verse 14 of chapter 5. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we inquired no land. All my servants were gathered here for the work. In other words, his servants aren't over making him wealthy while he hangs out by the wall. Everything he's got is in on this. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my own table 150 men, Jews, officials, those who came to us from nations around us. Now what was prepared at my expense each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on these people. I mean, Nehemiah is in a really prominent position. He was in a really prominent position when he was there with King Artaxerxes, and yet he did not take advantage of all the stuff that was there. He did not want to be lording over his brothers. And now he's in Israel taking part in this project, building this wall, and he's saying, I'm not doing this here either. All my servants are here. I'm feeding people at my house every single day. I even have this ration that's allowed to me, and I'm not taking advantage of it because people out here are starving, and I'm not going to take all this food when it's going to be too much burden when people are already starving. Like this guy is sacrificing for his people. Nehemiah is not just a leader or a dictator or a visionary. He is a generous, godly man. And he is setting an incredible example for them. He's showing that his leadership, and Nehemiah is the book that maybe more than any other book in the Bible, when we're looking to lessons on leadership, Nehemiah is kind of the pinnacle, if you will, of leadership books in the Bible. And he shows that biblical leadership looks different than the leadership we see around the world. Biblical leadership is by its very nature and definition sacrificial. 
It is not some sort of pyramid where you're at the top and all these people exist under you to make all of your dreams come true. That's not biblical leadership. If anything, it is a pyramid, but it's inverted, and you're at the bottom. And you exist to help these people's dreams come true. And these people, dreams come true sounds a little weird. That sounds a little publisher's clearinghouse though, doesn't it right there? We can change that. How about this? You exist to equip people so that they can fulfill the calling God has on their lives. We're going to hit that hard in Ephesians 4 coming up. But that's what his job is. So, so here's a guy who has absolutely set a trend that will be exemplified by Jesus Christ in a way that no one else in the history of the world ever has. Because think about Jesus. What did he say? I came not to, to be served, but to serve. He teaches in Matthew 20, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you become a slave or servant to other people. Biblical leadership is by definition not just servant leadership, which is a phrase you hear a lot, but it is sacrificial servant leadership. You're dying to self for others. You're not esteeming yourself over others, as Philippians says. There is passage after passage after passage after passage that says biblical leadership is we bow to others. We bend a knee to others. We give out of even our limited resources to others. This is what it looks like. And the reason we do this is because this is what God has done for us. That, that, think about it. I mean, Jesus, who had better status than Jesus ever? I mean, we're talking about Nehemiah had a lot of privileges, but think of Jesus. I mean, he's, he's God. But what does Philippians say? He did not see that as something to be held on to, but instead he did what? He humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, and came here to serve us, to get us out of the mess that we were in. And then Peter says that Jesus has then set for us an example that we should follow after him. And so this is what it means, not just to be a Christian, but to be a leader in Christianity means we exist to serve others. We do not exist as leaders to be exploitive so that those under us exist for us. Um, there's even one of them, I should have looked it up, it's just coming to my mind now, I didn't think of it earlier, but in one of the four accounts of the um, disciples and the feeding of the 5,000, there's something really interesting that happens. You know, the, the apostles are coming to Jesus and they're like, we are starving, we are tired. If you know the story, they're exhausted. They just buried their friend, John the Baptist, his headless body. They just did that. So they are freaked out, depressed, scared, sad, definitely thinking we're next. If this is the forerunner for Jesus and this is what they do to him, we're next and they're scared. The Bible even talks about how they needed to get away. And Jesus he ends up sending them across the sea. Of course, they're going to go through a little storm. But that's a whole other story. But they're struggling. And so Jesus is like, come on, guys, let's get away for a little while. And all these people come, and they're all hungry. And Jesus is like sitting here teaching. And the, the disciples come to him, and what are they doing? They're like, Jesus, look, they're, they're all hungry. I love how they play it off. They play it off exactly like we would, don't we? Like they're tired, they're exhausted, they're hungry, their vacation is being impeded on or, or infringed on, but they go, look how hungry they all are, Jesus. It's like we see that little opening, we got to take advantage of it, right? They're so tired, Jesus, and they're hungry. And Jesus says to them, well, what do you got? What do we got to feed them? Nowhere near enough, we just have this little bit. And yet, because they were still willing and they were there, they not only got to see Jesus do an incredible miracle that most people there probably had no idea what was going on. They probably think, man, those guys brought a lot of fish. 
They don't see any of that going on. But there's some wording in one of the four accounts that's particular. It says that Jesus broke the bread, he broke the fish, he gave the fish to the disciples, and then it says in one of the accounts, and he gave the disciples to the people. And I think the wording of that is significant. If you're in any form of Christian leadership, you are a gift from God to serve and bless other people. He's given you to them. He has not given them to you. Does that make sense? Big difference compared to the world and the things that we see today. So this is the model. Nehemiah is a guy we should study and we should wish we were like and pray we're like and beg God to make us more and more like. And in verse 19, so, so think about it now. Nehemiah, he just said, this is what I've been doing for you guys. This is what I've done. And then he does this little prayer. Look in verse 19. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for these people. That's, that's an okay prayer. And he's a humble, he's a prayerful guy. We know this about him. He's going to pray in a minute again. But think what he's done. I have sacrificed for these guys. I have given for these guys. I have poured myself out for these guys. Lord, will you please remember all that I've done and honor me in this for my good, please? That's, that may not be a prayer we would always verbalize, but I think that's a thought process we easily can get into. All right, it's my turn. Like I, I have done this and this and this, and this, and next week should be rough at work, but come on, Lord, come through for me now. I, I did all this. I tithed extra at church yesterday, so I need you Monday morning. Come on, baby. Well, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, and a lot of times it's when those things are happening that the attacks are going to come, not because God is uncaring, but because we live in a fallen world with an enemy that despises the works of God. So when you're in that place, that's when you should put your guard up, not lean back. So Nehemiah's prayer, Lord, remember me for my good, all of these things, and then the opposition comes right back at him again, but this time worse than the first time. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. So everything's done, but the door, excuse me, that was incredibly rude and embarrassing. Um, there's, everything's done, but the gates and the doors are still empty, right? And how good is a gate with no door? Not good, right? Not good. Screen door submarine kind of a thing, right? You guys are still laughing at me because I burped. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> Verse 2. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at that place in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So, so here comes the opposition. Lord, remember me for my good because I've been doing all this stuff. Oh, I hope God comes through. Oh, you have to be kidding me. This is pretty much what's going on. But the opposition this time is different. Now, it's, it's the same people. Same neighboring nations and kingdoms, but all of the opposition before was directed towards the people of Israel and towards the work going on in the wall. Where's the opposition specifically directed now? To Nehemiah himself. Now the attack is coming at him. If we can't stop all of this, maybe if we can cut the head off the snake, the whole thing will die. Let's go after Nehemiah. Another leadership lesson that you're going, you're putting yourself out there when you're leading, right? I mean, you're the, you're the first one. You're the one that's going to take the hits, and you're the one that the enemy's after. It's, it's like um, it, 
Can I quote this movie? I'm gonna. In, in A Few Good Men, remember Tom Cruise and the guys show up at Guantanamo Bay to go tour the prison right there at Cuba, and they're gonna be right there on the firing line, and they show up in their dress whites. And what is it that the Marines do as soon as they get there? They give them these big brown jackets and make them cover all that stuff up. And they're like, we got uniforms, we don't need jackets. And he goes, no, no, no. When they see someone in a fancy white uniform like yours, they think that's someone worth taking a shot at. So they're leaders. If we can get that leader, that makes a giant impact in the enemy. This is what they're talking about here. So now, if they can't shut it all down, let's go after Nehemiah specifically. And so it's personal now. This is leader, leadership lesson here. Great victory, you've, you've opposed opposition, you've beat back the opposition as a nation, you've dealt with opposition within your own nation, people responded and they repented when you called them out in the nation, they gave money back, the slaves were freed, it's a huge victory, right? That's the time to be careful, leaders, because it's, it's after some of the biggest successes ever. Any of you that have been in any form of leadership at all, you know this. When things are best, that's when you know something's coming. It's like things are going way too well. I need to be careful. And this is the exact truth here. Like he's won some great victories. It looks like everyone's beat back. And now here it comes again. It's like Elijah, the prophets of Baal, Fire comes down the altar, giant victory, 450 pagan prophets slain by Elijah. I mean, he's like a ninja warrior up here just taking everyone on with God on his side. I mean, he, he called down fire from heaven. It's amazing what happens. And then Jezebel, one woman says, I'm going to get you. And he freaks out and runs for his life for hundreds of miles. Like the attacks come. No leader is Superman. And that's why we need to be constantly dependent on God. Never think that you pulled this stuff off or that you've got this covered or you're walking on your own. This is the time more than any to lead on God, if for no other reason than because we need to be very particularly aware of our own pride after successes, right? So now this, the attacks are coming at Nehemiah himself. Verse 3, And so I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Now here, here's what the attack is. Let me help, help you guys understand that. These guys who have tried to stop him before and failed, now they're coming to Nehemiah with a different message. They're, they're going, okay, Nehemiah, look, your wall's up, the gates aren't in yet, but we know how this is going to work. It's all going to work out. And we're all going to be living together in this same area for a long time. So here's what we should do. Let's pick a neutral area, and we're going to have this great big come together, UN type moment, and we're going to all hug it out. And we're going to talk through all this stuff and learn how we can live together. That's the message they're sending him. Now, on the surface, it could seem like that might not be a bad idea. Yeah, we should get along with our neighbors. I mean, if you move into a neighborhood, don't you want to kind of get to meet the neighbors and all that and get to know them? It seems like a good idea, but the problem is, is that there is a conniving plan here to get at Nehemiah here. And so Nehemiah, after all that victory, after all that opposition that he's beat back, he's vulnerable here because he could say, see, they know they can't beat me. Now they want to be friends with me, and I'm going to tell them how it is. Let's go meet. But instead, verse 3, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? That is a great, that, that's a famous, should be underlined, highlighted verse in your Bible. I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. That should be the verse that every people pleaser on this earth memorizes. Now, don't raise your hands because you wouldn't want anybody to think bad of you. But if you're a people pleaser, um, 
Is that a verse that might help you to learn? If you have a hard time saying no to people, I've been through some of these kind of things. That's kind of my nature in a lot of ways. And, and, and I can be that guy that feels like I need to say, say yes to everyone. But, but here's Nehemiah. An opportunity seems to have presented itself here, but he's been called to one thing in particular, and he's pouring everything he can into doing what God has called him to do. And he says, sorry, I'm doing a great work. That might even be a good work. I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down from here. Why would I stop this work to come to you? So verse 4, and they sent to me four times in this way, And I answered them in the same manner. Sometimes if Satan can't get you, he'll try to wear you down. So repeated temptations going on and on, trying to weaken his resistance, but he continues to hold back. And so now, all right, it's not going to work. Let's regroup. Let's figure out a different way to beat him down. Verse 5. And in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. You guys know what an open letter is? Um, Normally, if a letter was sent, it would be what? sealed with a stamp. This letter is unsealed, open, meaning it's not just to Nehemiah, but it's to anyone else who wants to read it. Um, Think blogger. (laughs) A lot of bloggers today will write open letters when they have something they want to say to somebody, and they might not even have access to that person, but they'll say, open letter to President Obama about whatever. Open letter to South Carolina about the Confederate flag. And the idea is, yeah, the letter's about them, but our real hope is that everyone else is going to read this thing, right? That's what this is. Unsealed letter. We're sending it. Make sure everybody sees it along the way. So an open letter is sent in his hand, and in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There was a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. They're spreading, by open letter, they're spreading a false rumor throughout the entire region to say, look, they're, bu- they're building that wall because they're going to rebel. And there's prophecies about a king that's going to come out of Judah. Then this is, this is him. Nehemiah's the guy. And they're getting these walls up. And let's face it, Israel does sort of have a history of not exactly getting along with oppressive regimes, right? And so it's very believable it's very likely. Um, in one day, elements of it may even be true, but it's a false rumor that they are intentionally spreading in hopes that word's going to get back to the Assyrian king and Artaxerxes is going to go, are you kidding me? Nehemiah, what are you doing? I commissioned you to go do this and this is how you repay me? And that's the issue. And he's saying, so this is the word that's out there, Nehemiah, so we should just shut everything down right now and let's get together and figure out how we can contain this. And so... Verse 8, and so I sent to him and I said, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. This is again another Bible verse that is fantastic. When someone says something to you, hey, I heard, I heard, you, re- you could just respond, Nehemiah 6, 8, talk to you later. And then they're going to go get a Bible. What is he? He's sending me some Bible verses. He's calling me out. Is he, is he blessing me with a Holy Scripture? And he's going to turn to Nehemiah 6, 8. No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. That's a great verse. You're making this up. It's not true. You're crazy. What are you thinking? You're inventing this out of your own mind. Verse 9. 
For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. This is really all they're doing. Does Sanballat have any authority to actually get Artaxerxes to do anything? No. Do we know that he has any relationship with Artaxerxes at all? We know Nehemiah does, and a really good relationship with Artaxerxes. The only thing he can do is scare him. He's tried more on, like, uh, 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 confrontational attacks. Those have failed. Everything he's tried to do has failed. The only thing he can do is scare him. Intimidate him is the actual uh, translation that's there. And guys, this is us. This is Satan. This is where we are today. Satan cannot touch you unless God allows him. He cannot touch you. But he can scare you. He can intimidate you. He can threaten you. And while you may not hear the little devil standing on your shoulder speaking into your ear, we might have words for it, things like anxiety, um, fear, depression, nothing's going to work out, you're going to be a failure, that thing you've been waiting on forever is not going to happen, all your worst fears are going to come true, and none of this stuff's going to work out to your good, and he can do everything he can to try to intimidate you away from the promises that God has already made in your life. That's what he does. And so how does Nehemiah respond to it? He says he prayed. He turns around and he prays, now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. I'll tell you guys a story from when I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, I grew up and, and I went to a, um, a Christian school similar to this, but it was under the covering of the Baptist church that we went to. We went to the kind of the big Baptist church in town and it had its own Christian school. And it was horrible. And I went to that school and um, for whatever reason, my parents would always drop me off super early for school. I, Dad had to be at work or whatever. So I was one of those kids like I'm there when the teacher gets there, and I'm becoming friends with the teacher, which I wanted nothing to do with because we're in the room together for an hour before any other kids show up. Like, I was that kid. So I would like, I'm going to go to the bathroom, or I'm going to try to walk down the hall, or just anything to get out of those rooms when I was a kid. And so one day, I went into the bathroom. I'm literally in the bathroom playing. In fact, what I was doing was I was climbing up on the handicap rails in the bathroom stall so that I could hold on to the overhang bar and swing. That's what I was doing. And as I'm doing that, the power shuts out. And it is pitch black, and I'm hanging on this bar, scared to death. I can't see the floor. <laughs> I'm terrified. And I was terrified. But there was something really interesting that passed into my mind that, that reminded me. My grandfather was a Baptist preacher. And uh, he had taught me something not very long before that, maybe right before, I don't know, maybe a bully was going to beat me up and I was scared. That wouldn't have been strange. I, I don't know what it was, but, but he, he said, here's what you should do, Jeff. If you're ever afraid, you need to do two things. You need to pray, and then I got this one Bible verse that I want you to repeat. In fact, I want you to make this Bible verse your prayer. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he goes, you're going to pray to God, but you're going to just recite this Bible verse over and over and over and over until you're not afraid anymore. And it was from Psalm. You guys know it by chance? What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. So I was literally hanging from the bar. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. And I was saying that as fast as I could. I let go of the bar, landed on the floor, 
what time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. And the power seemed like it was out. You know how it is when you're a kid. Like that, I think the power was out for days. I think I was stranded in there for days. Um, I lost weight. It was horrible. But, um, but still dark, sitting in there. What time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. And finally a little flashlight peeks in and it's Buford, our just, it's like think Morgan Freeman as the janitor at the church that we worked at. Who's in here? And he could hear me quoting the scripture in there, and he came and he rescued me from the dark, dank bathroom at Merriman Avenue Baptist Church. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. But, but I can tell you this, that's, that's all cute kid story or nerdy little boy story, whatever it is. It's a biblical principle, man. Satan cannot touch you, but he can scare you. But you have access to the Father. And the scriptures say that perfect love casts out fear. You have access to the God of all creation. What can Satan possibly do to you? So that, that you, in the midst of your fear and anxiety and depression, and this will never work out, can go to the God who is in control of everything. And all Satan can do is stand back with his hands tied and go, boo. That is an incredible thing that we should think more about what a gift that is. And so Nehemiah prays, Oh God, strengthen my hands against this threat. And then one last threat comes. Now when I was in the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of that guy with an M, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Um, anybody know what the house of God within the temple would be referred to as? The Holy of Holies, okay? The place within the temple that only the priest goes into once a year. It is God's dwelling place in the temple. That's what he's talking about here. So he's saying, hey, come, let's meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. Now, our English translations kind of miss out on this, and we don't really speak in the same way. But the way that this is written is what would be referred to as written as an oracle. So what he's saying is this. This guy has come to Nehemiah. He is a Jew who has apparently been bought out by or sold out or whatever with Sanballat and all these enemies. And he's come to Nehemiah with a thus says the Lord. You guys know what I mean by that? He's come to Nehemiah with a, hey, God told me something. God told me that they're coming to get you, that they're coming to kill you, and they're coming to kill you tonight. Quick, let's go. They will never look in the house of the Lord inside the temple. Let's go hide there. It's a thus saith the Lord. You ever had anyone share any of those to you? Some thus saith the Lord, some God told me to tell you things, some of you maybe. Um, especially if you come from more charismatic or more Pentecostal backgrounds, that definitely happens in a lot of those settings. Have you had anyone ever tell you something like that that ended up not being true? A few people? Yeah. It's kind of normal. It's kind of normal. In fact, it's so normal that the New Testament tells us this. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, I absolutely believe, some of you may disagree with me on this. I don't care. I have the mic. I absolutely believe that God speaks to us. I believe that the Bible is the complete revelation of God, okay? There's no new revelation concerning God and his redemptive plan that's coming than this. But I do believe God speaks to us and can speak 
through others to us. But we are to test those things. I don't care how spiritual the other person is. I don't care how holy the other person is or how good the thing that gets said to you sounds. The scripture says don't believe every prophecy that comes your way. Test the spirits. Make sure that the heart of man has not deceived that person. The scriptures say that the heart is deceptively wicked. Who can know it? And so someone might be desiring to bless you and do well, but they might not be speaking for God in the way that they claim to be. We are to test the spirits, especially before we make some sort of move based on the prophecy that comes our way. And the other thing that we should understand also about any time anyone ever comes to you and says, thus saith the Lord, nothing that comes from God will ever contradict anything that is in this book. Everybody understand that? Ever. If anything someone says to you contradicts what's in this book, you don't need time to do any more testing. That is not from God. And, And you may love that person, they're just wrong. They're just wrong. And Nehemiah knows this right away. He knows it. Verse 11, he says, Should such a man as I run away? And what such man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. In verse 12, And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be, here's that word again, afraid and act in this way and what? And sin, so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, excuse me, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who want to make me what? Afraid. This is what he's saying. Instantly, he knows that's not a word from God because is Nehemiah qualified and allowed to go into the Holy of Holies? Absolutely not. And what has Nehemiah been called to do? Build the wall. God didn't send Nehemiah to there to build part of a wall and leave the gates wide open, which does no good whatsoever for the city at all. Nehemiah knows exactly what God's called him to do, and Nehemiah knows exactly what God has called him not to do. And based on those two understandings, the moment that word comes, he's like, nope, that's not for me. You've been hired. You've been hired to stop me. And you are now being literally used by Satan and by these men to try to make me afraid. Satan's tactic. Men, and this happens all the time. Men, if I follow God, I'm never going to get what I want. If I'm obedient to that scripture about this, I'll never have that kind of relationship. I've got this incredible relationship with this incredible guy, but he wants me to go to bed with him. I'm speaking as if I was a girl, I should clarify. (laughs) I've got this incredible relationship with this incredible guy, but he's putting pressure on me to compromise myself in some ways. And I'm worried that if I don't do that, I'm going to lose him and I'll never be happy without him. So maybe what I should do is just ignore that one part of God's word and make sure I do this out of fear that I'm going to lose it. That's Satan telling you, if you obey God, you will never have that thing. You will never have peace. You will never have the life that you want it. You will never survive missing out on this thing. And it's not true. God never, ever calls you to do anything that is against his word. And you go, but it's not good. It's not, that is not true. God is for you more than you will ever possibly understand. And the scriptures say, if there's something you don't have, 
God's not withholding from you because he's a jerk or because he's cruel. That was the whole temptation in the Garden of Eden. But the Bible says that God withholds no good thing from his children. No good thing. So if you don't have it, it's just not the right time yet. It's not good for you yet. And God knows if you have it, you'll be worse off than if you didn't. But Satan has this way of getting in there and fear, and you just got to have this, and, and, and this intimidation, trying to get us away from what God has called us to do, trying to get us to compromise the things that God has called us to live by, and to get off track because our eyes now are on our needs and what we want instead of understanding that we have been created for one reason only, and that is to live according to God's purpose. And when we do that is when we find the most full, fulfilled, and joyful life. Anything short of that is second rate at best. It's just the truth. It's the absolute truth. And so what is it that we're to do? We are to keep trusting God. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. Not just because it's dark or because we think a monster's in the closet, but when I'm afraid my life's not going to work out, I'm going to trust in you. When I'm afraid I'm not going to get that thing, when I'm afraid that this desire of my heart is never going to be fulfilled, I'm going to trust in you. Every time I'm afraid, I'm going to trust in you. And when you do that, it's amazing who actually ends up afraid. Because look what happens in verse 15. This is, a, this is such a great chapter. And so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In 52 days, this is in September, the wall is done. It started in August, it's done in September. I think that's bad math, but doesn't matter. Let's go, keep going. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were what? Come on, say it loud. This is exciting. All the nations around us were what? Afraid. The people that are trying to make him scared sees that he is faithful to God's call. They finish the wall and they're like, oh no. All the nations around us were afraid, and they fell greatly in their own esteem. That translates literally, they lost all self-confidence and fell greatly in their eyes. In other words, we're in big trouble and we have no hope. And you know what? They're absolutely right. Satan can scare you all he wants, but he has no hope. No hope. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Because Nehemiah was faithful, said, I will not listen to these voices. I'm going to do what God called me to do. What time I'm afraid I will trust in thee. I'm going to keep going to the Lord. I'm going to keep praying, but I'm going to keep doing what God's called me to do. I don't have time to deal with you. This is a great work. That's a good work. This is a great work. And I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And as people saw God work through Nehemiah, Nehemiah wasn't afraid anymore. He was safe and sound. And it, I mean, it's a miracle. They rebuilt this wall in 52 days. It's a miracle. He's high as a kite. Not Oregon high as a kite. But like he's, he's happy. And everyone else on the outside that wanted to end it and that said, knock it off. You need to be afraid. You're going to be in trouble. They're shaking in their boots, terrified. Because now they realize, God's got that guy's back, and we're in trouble. And that is a good word for some people in this room. Stay faithful to God. Don't give up. Don't be afraid. Don't buy into the lies that all the surrounding nations want to tell you that if you, get, if you do this, 
If you keep following God the way he's called you to follow him, you will be miserable. You're going to be a loser. You're going to have no friends. Your life's going to be a failure. Don't listen. Don't be afraid. And what time you are afraid, trust in him. God will never make a fool of you, ever. He will never make a fool of you. He will never let you down. Your life will never be wasted when it's following him. And there will come a day soon, I would imagine, that you will be seeing the faithful workings of God in your life and those who would oppose you are going to see that and they're going to be shaken in their boots. And I don't even mean just people. I mean the demons that whisper in your ear, you're a loser, you're a failure. Things like anxiety and all those kind of things, they have no hope at holding you eternally because you are in the hand of God Almighty. So don't bail. Don't bail. Be faithful. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Say it with me. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Like my grandpa taught me. Stand up and say it with me. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Louder. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Like the demon is here and can hear you. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. God will never make a fool of you. Amen. God, we just pray your blessing on this night, on these things, and I pray that these truths will take such deep root in us, God, that we can't help but follow you. But Lord, we are weak. <laughs> For some of us, we can look at Nehemiah just in awe. We're not, we're not like Nehemiah. So God, will you strengthen us? Lord, will you look out for us? Will you cover us, Lord? Will you, Lord, make strong our hand as Nehemiah prayed and give us the strength by your grace and spirit to keep following you? May we not believe the lies of the enemy that, that we're in trouble, that we're not going to make it, that this is a waste of time following you. But what time we are afraid, may we trust in you. And God, I pray that you would work such victories through us and around us that the enemy will always be shaken in his boots when he sees us coming. Not because of us, but because of you. We pray these things in your mighty, powerful, and faithful name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. You learned a new Bible verse today. God bless you guys. I love you. We'll see you soon.